0: go ahead and introduce you i have dale hole on the podcast dale thank you so much for participating you're very welcome
1: thanks for inviting me
0: you were an OBGYN before your accident correct tell me what motivated you to go into the medical field
1: <laughs> oh that's a that's a bit of a story um <laughs> So, uh, as I, ever since junior high, I'd started, I I thought I was going to be going to dentistry. Um, I had a brother-in-law who's a dentist and my brother was an orthodontist. And so I kind of launched into school thinking I'm going to go to dental school. And, and then lo and behold, in my junior year of, of college, I, I suddenly came face to face with the reality that that is not what I wanted to spend my whole life doing, uh, but I was still struggling with what I was, what I really wanted to do. So I started looking around and and thinking about uh, other opportunities. I applied to law school, um, got in as an alternate. Thank goodness I didn't get into law school. Um, and during that time, I was actually uh, working at Hostess Bakery, making Twinkies for a living. So I'd come home and nice and say to say to my wife, because I by then I was married guess what I did for the world today? I made 100,000 Twinkies. And uh, (laughs) I just really realized that I I just didn't want to work for a paycheck, right? And during Mm. that same time, I actually went out and got a pilot's license because I'd always wanted to learn to fly. And I thought, okay, okay, I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a pilot. Well, about that same time, uh, my wife and I witnessed a car accident in front of us, and we were kind of the first responders on the Mm. scene and I was very frustrated by the fact that I didn't know what to do. Mm. So I immediately enrolled in the Utah state emergency medical technician program and became a certified EMT and said, okay, I finally, this, this makes sense to me. This, this is really what I want to do. Uh, But by then, you know, I'm out of school and um, it was a bit of a challenge because you know, am I going to apply to medical school as a Twinkie maker? I, I mean, you know, I mean, it's important to be in, involved in academics. And fortunately, yeah. I had a. Uh, uh, in fact, I'll tell you this really quick story, which is really important to me. Uh, at one point in time, I was very discouraged. I was sitting at my desk doodling. And as part of my doodles, I started signing my name just to practice. Just is kind of a mindless. A slurry of of feeling bad for myself. And at one point I signed my name and then paused for a minute. And then I wrote MD behind my name. That's And I powerful. looked at that and said, there is no way that that will ever happen.
0: Mm. Just
1: because it seemed like so far away, right? Yeah. Well, I had a good friend who was a, a professor at BYU. He happened to call me shortly after that, said, what do you doing making Twinkies? He said, well, would you want to come down and be a, a lab TA and, and work on a master's degree? And I said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do that. So I jumped back into school and I applied to medical school uh, and obviously made it into med school and, and then did a residency in OBGYN. So the fun part of the story to close the circle is there were days when I was a busy practicing physician and I would be signing a chart and I would sign my name and write MD. Wow, behind my my name. And I would look at that and say it happened. So pretty crazy now, you know, I mean cuz you, you got to remember that it just didn't poof, you know, happen, right? Yeah. There was a there was a lot of work, a lot of steps and a lot of intermediate um milestones that happened to to finally get there.
0: Do you have any special advice for anyone who would be going into medical school right now?
1: Um Well, you know, when I was a fourth year medical student, I had the opportunity to sit on the admissions committee for the University of Utah. And that was a great experience because it gave me an opportunity to see the other side of the process. And I will tell you this, that when I would interview candidates, there were two things that I looked for in those candidates. Number one is they had to have a genuine love of biological sciences. They had to really Mm. be fascinated with biology and what it means and um, because, I mean, that's your whole life, right? Yeah. The, the second thing that I look for is that they had attained a level of excellence in something in their life, and it didn't matter to me what it was. They could be a, a concert pianist or a great artist or uh, a skateboarder or an athlete. And the reason that, the reason I feel like that's an important thing is you know, the, the part of the challenge of being, of getting through medical school and being a physician is you have to be focused when you don't want to be focused. You have to do the hard things, even though you don't feel like doing the hard things or you're tired. And what I realized is if someone attains a level of excellence at something in their life, they had to put in the private time before the public performance actually occurred, Right. If you want to be really good at the piano, you're going to be sitting at that piano when no one's watching, doing what you have to do. Even if your friends are out playing and you want to do something else, you have to put in the time and the sacrifice to reach that level of excellence. So if someone had done that in their life, that showed me that they had that something that that they knew how to sacrifice, they knew how to focus and they were willing to put in the time to make that happen
0: that's great that all of that makes perfect sense too the there's a lot that goes behind the scenes for the people who have accomplished great things and and uh comes down to a lot of discipline and being able to stay focused on those types of things and having a love for those things is definitely a huge huge help it's oh, kind yeah, of a absolutely. superpower <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely I love it. So, okay, after so now you're an OBGYN. Tell me how long were you an OBGYN before your accident?
1: So, I was in practice for 10 years. Uh, okay. General general obstetrics and gynecology in the south part of the Salt Lake Valley. Okay. And uh was in a great group practice, great um, partners and a good group, we'd grown and really had really tried to create a practice that was um, very patient-oriented and had some things that others didn't. Like we, we put mammography in our office, you know, we had ultrasound in our office. And of course, this was a long time ago when most ultrasounds were you had you had to send a patient down to radiology in the hospital. So by having our own ultrasound suite, our own ultrasonographer our own mammography, all that sort of thing, we tried to create this kind of a wellness concept of uh, taking taking care of the entire patient.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. That's having one place to go for all of those things is super helpful. Right. Especially at a time when probably information didn't pass as easily as it does now and whatnot.
1: No, we, we did. I started practice in 1989 and there was no such thing as an electronic medical record
0: yeah darn it (laughs) that would have been nice I'm sure so tell me about what you did for fun during that time when you're established and you know you have this family I know that you guys went boating a lot is that one of your main things that you guys did yeah as a family uh boating was something that
1: we we love to do uh you know i I had the opportunity to be uh, somewhat of an athlete. I mean I won't say I'm a superb athlete, but I liked I enjoyed all all sorts of sports. I mean I, I was I played football in college and um, so you know, I, I was do I did okay. But yeah, we went we would go to Lake Powell and we invested in a houseboat and a ski boat and and obviously we had four boys and so, you know, they grew up um, being around the water and learning how to wakeboard and do all that kind of stuff.
0: That's really cool. Yeah, I didn't get into boating until I met our mutual friend Ryan Garrettson, and, and now, well, now I need to figure out how to get my own boat because it's too fun. Well, the, the best the best
1: advice is you don't you don't want to get a boat. You just want a friend with a boat. That's
0: right. It sure is nice having a friend with a boat, so you don't have to worry about any of the maintenance or. You know, you you definitely try to help out with the cleaning and whatnot, but... Well, someone, someone just recently
1: sent me a meme that showed a, a hand holding a $100 bill that was on fire. Uh-huh. And, that, and the, the caption was, If you are comfortable with this, you're ready to own a
0: boat. <laughs> There's a guy who I really look up to. He's probably in his 40s and makes 30 bucks an hour. So he actually delayed his retirement so he could buy a boat and he did it at a time when his kids were approaching the teenage years and his philosophy behind that was when kids get older a lot of times parents spend less time with their kids and what he wanted to do was spend more time with his kids during that time and so he said it's way more worth it for me to delay my retirement so I can enjoy that those moments with my kids and bond with them and create a, a stronger relationship, and that hit me so hard. And that was before I really got into boating.
1: And- well, what's fun about boating is that you're you have a captured audience. You know, when you're on the boat, yeah. <laughs> everybody's everybody's together, and you're make and you're making fun of the person behind the boat, no know, knowing that. It's going to be your turn to be made fun of because you're going to be out there too. Um, it's but you're all you're all there together, you know, and so you have that Ooh. common experience, and it's it's a it's a group a group process.
0: I'm a fan of it. Um, so you were very active, though you you had boating, you had sports. Um, so now let's get into, I guess the moment when your accident occurred because that I'm sure I can't imagine how much of an inflection point that was for you in your life. <laughs> That's a bit
1: of an understatement. So, yeah. Um, so on the, in July of 1999, I came home from work July 19th, actually. And uh, the family I'd come home a little bit later, the family had already had their dinner and gone there the boys were just doing their thing. And so I grabbed a quick bite to eat and then went out to jump on our backyard trampoline. And uh, I, you know, we'd put our trampoline in the ground so it would be safer. And I'd grown up with trampolines even when I was a kid in my hometown. So I was just jumping on the trampoline, doing some front flips and back flips. And obviously I, you know, I, I've had people say, you were 44 and you're doing back flips. not sure that that was a good idea, but nevertheless, that's what I was doing. And on a particular backflip, as I hit the takeoff and uh, reached the peak of my jump, realized I was in serious trouble because I didn't have enough rotation to complete the flip. And I was doing a laid out backflip. So if you can picture uh, me uh, in the peak of my jump, I looked like a high jumper, right? Back parallel to the ground, legs dangling down. Um, with my back arched, but I'm not rotating. And so I realized immediately that I'm in big trouble. Uh, and then my first thought was to reach behind me with my hands back to see if I could catch myself. And immediately when I had that thought, uh, Christopher Reeve's horseback riding accident went through my brain. And I I know it's getting far enough down the road that some people don't know who Christopher Reeve is, but he was the actor who played Superman originally. Um, and he was on a horse, a, uh, a jumping competitive horse and the horse stopped short. He went over the horse's head and hit the ground in kind of a pile driving accident and suffered a spinal cord injury at the very highest level. Uh, and I, I thought to myself, if I'm not successful, I may have a similar injury in reverse. So the only other thing I could think of doing was to throw my right leg and see if I could twist. And obviously, you know, didn't have a, a lot of hang time remaining. So I, I landed on the trampoline, on the mat. Uh, but at the, by this point in time, my body was straight up in the air with my chin on my chest because I was now hitting mm-hmm. the mat. And immediately heard and felt a pop. And everything went completely numb, just like throwing a switch. And um, I bounced on the trampoline and because i tried to twist as i bounced then i rotated and came down on my stomach and this is probably the first bit of good fortune that happened to me is i landed on the mat with my head perfectly in the opening that's was created where a couple of the springs had fallen out mm-hmm. the reason that that's important is if you remember your first aid if someone's had major trauma, you want to keep everything as aligned as possible with their spine to, mm-hmm. pre- for, to prevent further injury. And by landing in that position, you know, my head didn't turn right or left, up or down. It was perfectly neutral. Um, but immediately, you know, I knew what had happened. Yeah. I I did try and move thinking, okay, just let, let's just double check, right? Couldn't move anything below my shoulders and I, I remember laying uh, I'm looking under the tramp I can see the dirt I can smell the weeds and uh, the you know the first words out of my mouth was oh god no not this hmm. um, and you know I've learned a lot during this entire journey of uh, through paralysis but this was this was lesson number one and that lesson number one is we're all going to have problems right that's not a secret. What I realized is the biggest challenge is it's going to be something that's not on your list. It's going Mm -hmm. to be something that shows up on a random Monday afternoon that you have no idea what to deal with. And I, I said those words because I thought it was really unfair that God was giving me something that I wasn't even remotely prepared for. And it was kind of like, really serious. Like, you you're going to make me a quadri- you know you're going to allow me to be a quadriplegic um come on kid can you, can you not have chosen something that's more reasonable right <laughs> and so just that overwhelming feeling of of being dealt something that seemed unfair was probably the first thing that I I, I realized was a big challenge to overcome
0: holy smokes yeah i can't imagine going through so did you know that, or what was your understanding about the recovering process from being a quadriplegic? Because mm-hmm. a lot of people don't recover. Oh.
1: I mean, I knew I had a spinal cord injury. Um, I knew my my life as a husband, father, physician was done. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the interesting I had a prescient moment where, you know, some people talk about how your life passes before you. While I was laying there, I'm I, it came to my mind that I would actually be the show and tell for Dr. James Swenson's second year medical student lecture about paralysis. And, I, and I, I don't know why I had that thought, because I had had that experience when I was a second year student, where he brought in a gymnast who had been paralyzed, right? Mm. And all of a sudden, I thought, that's going to be me. And sure enough, that <sighs> happened. That ended up happening. And I... <laughs> I ended up being his show and tell patient for the second year medical students. Um, so, uh, I mean, yeah, I knew exactly how bad it was, and especially when I got to the hospital and they they took an X ray and I had dislocated the the fourth, excuse me, the fifth cervical vertebrae over the fourth. So that instead of being lined up, they were misaligned, and they stayed that way. They were stayed, locked in place because, you know, the little bones behind your Spine, are called the lamina, and they were they were locked together, so my spinal cord was coming down and taking two ninety degree turns, and so the prognosis at that point was most likely I would be uh, completely paralyzed from the neck down. I'd be in a in a sip and puff wheelchair. Um, I mean, it it was like, yep yeah, that's, that's what we're dealing with. I mean, I didn't have Holy any. Holy smokes! I didn't have any pretense that it was that was going to be anything different
0: so guide me through the following year of of just after your accident
1: so uh obviously transferred to the university of utah went through neuro icu went to rehab for three and a half months and during that time is when i started to have some neurological recovery Mm. and uh, you know there's some significant things that happened and and there were I have no question about that. There was some divine intervention in terms of of getting some recovery of my nervous system, but I also had a lot of complications and I, you know, I made progress and then lost progress and lost function. And it was a very up and down, you know, very difficult day to day, hour to hour kind of existence. Um, At one point, you know, did I think about suicide? Absolutely. Uh, Because it was one of those things where you have to kind of consider, well, you know, here's my choice on this end, and here's my other choice on this end. Where where do I want to go? Because you think, you know, I didn't even feel like I uh, I didn't even feel like a human being anymore. I mean, I didn't feel like I had any value. And I think what's interesting is, what you know, we're defined by what we do in life, and when you can't do what you do, you become nothing. Mm. And when you become nothing, then you think well, why should I stick around, right? Yeah. Um, You know, if you're a teacher, you're defined as a teacher. And if you can't teach anymore, you're nothing. You know, I I was a doctor. I can't be a doctor anymore, so I'm nothing. So that was Mm. a very, very hard time. And uh, eventually I was discharged to home after several complications and um, getting very sick. And um, I was getting my PT and OT at home which was very fortunate, but here's the secondary problem is, I learned very quickly that the insurance coverage is very limited and uh, the therapist only have enough time to change your environment, not change you. And I wanted them to kind of work on me before they gave me new door handles or an elevated toilet seat, right? Yeah. And so uh, that was a frustrating aspect for me and at seven months after my accident, I met an extraordinary physical therapist uh, who got who drew the short straw and had to take care of an SOV doctor who was trying to dictate his own care. And uh, <laughs> so she showed Dang. up the first day and uh, we didn't get along that first day. And she came back the next day and uh, her name was Jan Black. And she said, look, you only have to put up with me for four days because she was just doing vacation coverage. I said, okay, do your thing. And really within about 30 to 45 minutes, I knew I had an extraordinary therapist. And so I fired everybody else and, and then uh, you know paid her and got my insurance to pay her. And we set out on a, a therapy adventure that lasted about uh, a little over two years where we were doing therapy every five days a week, multiple hours a day, trying to regain as much as possible. And uh, that all culminated with me having the opportunity to uh, carry the Olympic torch in 2002 as part of the Winter Olympics. Um, and I, I was able to do it without a cane, a crutch, or a wheelchair and carry the, carry the torch with my own hands in the cold with gloves on and walk, you know, uh, about two-tenths of a mile.
0: Only um, smokes.
1: Yeah, so that, you know, that was... That was my fifteen minutes of flame, and uh, <laughs> so, and I was surrounded by hundreds of people who came to see just me. And to make it even more Disney-like, I ended up uh, passing the Olympic flame to Hall of Fame NBA basketball player Karl Malone, which was totally <laughs> unknown. Nice. And uh, was there's a whole another story that goes along with that, which is quite remarkable.
0: Oh uh, man. Uh, Okay, so I have, there's so much amazing stuff just from what you just said, but uh, so back when you were feeling worthless though, and you were considering suicide, what pulled you out of that moment or those moments? What, what, what motivated you to keep going?
1: Well, I think number one is, you know, my, my faith, my personal faith and knowing that that you know there is a God uh, but I think the second thing is obviously I had a wife who is incredibly supportive she's a non-medical person who got thrust into a very significant and bewildering medical situation but she never wavered you know she stayed right with it and uh, and her faith I will credit her faith she had a lot more uh, faith in terms of where, what was going to happen than I did So, um, you know, and I credit her with some of the divine intervention that happened. And then the other thing that happened was the overwhelming support that came to me through friends, family, patients, and the community. And I think you can't underestimate the power of that support network. And whether or not people believe in God or a a, a, um, universal being, one of the things I came to realize is that as humans, we all are—we all have a an essence or an energy, a spirit, a soul, whatever you want to call it—and if you if you can get a large number of people to focus on one common thing, there literally is energy that makes that. Thing happen and you know from my perspective I, I call you know if you can get enough spirits offering prayers on your behalf when those prayers arrive in heaven that's a literal petition that has to be dealt with the heavens have to say they, they have to answer to that right yeah and so I think I think that Became really critical in terms of me moving forward, knowing that I had all these people who were who loved me, and my wife wallpapered my hospital room with the cards and letters that people sent, and it's literally like I attended my own eulogy, at my own funeral because they wrote things in that, in those cards as if I had died, and mm. uh, and I still I've kept those all of those because of how valuable they are. So here's the other thing that I I will share with your listeners that I think is important that we sometimes overlook. And that is if, if there's somebody in your life that you really respect or you like, or uh, just, you, you know, you, you feel something for that person. Don't wait until they're in the casket, send them a text, a note, a phone call. Hey, you know what? I think you're cool. I think I, you know, you've done a lot for me. Thank you so much. You mean a lot because that is very important and very powerful. And we for whatever reason, we don't share those things as often as we need to.
0: That's some wonderful advice. Yeah. I, And it's easy to forget how amazing that feels, whether you're on the giving or receiving end of something like that. But what a unique experience to be able to have an idea of what your, your eulogy would be like and <laughs> what, what a funeral would be like. And I'm sure that was, uh, extremely eye-opening in and of itself guide me through what it was like when you realize that you, you there was hope to walk again
1: well obviously things things take a long time with paralysis um it takes an enormous amount of effort and things what I what I tell people is it's glacially slow you know if you want to if you want to be entertained take your wheel your lawn chair sit in front of a glacier and tell me what happens You know most you know occasionally there's a big chunk that falls off but it's typically a lot of just creaking and groaning and and things don't happen very quickly so it's a slog and and it did it didn't just suddenly happen and so each little each little um moment of progress was something to celebrate Um, but at one point in time um, jan said to me you know you're making you're making great progress but you don't seem to be happy how come you're not happy? And the reason was that I I was so afraid that if I became happy, that the progress would stop. And so I said to her, well, I'm pleased, but I'm not satisfied. And that, that became my little mantra of how I moved forward. I said, okay, I'm pleased, but I'm not satisfied. What's next? What's next? What's next? And I just had to keep, Kind of creating goals and challenges for myself, even if they are small and incremental, um, to to keep me moving forward.
0: Yeah, that, that's a great way to look at it. Um, wonderful. So, tell me the story about Carl Malone, <laughs> <laughs> if you have time.
1: Oh, sure, if you want it, if you want to hear it. So, here's here's the backstory. When the 2002 Winter Olympic Organizing Committee announced that they were going to allow ordinary citizens to carry the Olympic torch, it made a big splash. You know, people were very excited about that. And at one point in time, Carl Malone was being interviewed after a basketball game. And the reporter said to Carl, how do you how would you feel about being given the opportunity to carry the Olympic torch? And Carl, being Carl, said, well, I'm not going to carry it somewhere in the desert. I'll only carry it somewhere significant, like into the stadium. So he essentially said, (laughs) I'm too important just to carry it. I I have to carry it into the Olympic Stadium, right? So that unleashed a a firestorm of bad publicity for Carl. Because people were like, I can't believe you're not grateful enough that you would just carry it no matter what. And so it was so bad and you could actually go back and find the news reports of all this. It was so bad that the organizing committee actually took him off their potential list (laughs) as a, as a, I mean, they had him listed as somebody they wanted to because of his his prominence in Utah, right? Yeah. They took him off the list. And, um, (laughs) So anyway, so now fast forward to my situation. When I find out that I'm going to be, or when I find out that ordinary citizens are going to carry the Olympic torch, I decided that was going to be a great goal for me because I wanted to be able to carry it without any assisted device, right? But you had to be nominated to be a torchbearer. So I nominated myself. I had everybody I knew nominate me. So I found out in July of 2001 that I would carry the torch in February of 2002. So I had six months to repair. So I'm working hard, trying to figure out how, how I'm gonna make this happen. And the, the irony of the story is, two people, two people literally said to me, not one, but two people on separate occasions said to me, well, what would you do if you had to carry, or if you had to pass the Olympic torch to Carl Malone? You know, and, and they I mean, it was just one of those moments where you're like, really? I mean, he's not going to carry it anyway. And so yeah. I said things like, well, I would just keep running or I'd extinguish the flame <laughs> where you couldn't see it or whatever. Right. Yeah. Okay. So now fast forward to the, to the day before I'm supposed to carry the torch and that it was very specific. You had to go from this mailbox to this telephone pole because it was two tenths of a mile. And I'd had all these people waiting. And once once they sent me the letter about two weeks before, everybody was like, okay, we're gonna come, we're gonna show up, we're gonna be there for you. I get this phone call the night before and the, the person identifies themselves as part of the Olympic Committee. They said, hey, we're gonna move you back one segment. I said, no, you cannot do that because Everybody's I mean, I can't call everybody, everybody's gonna come and see me, right? Yeah. But I didn't know why. They didn't say anything why. So I show up the day of the relay and I'm sitting in my car and this gentleman walks up and he says, Hey, uh, I'm part of the I'm part of the organizing committee. Do you wanna know who you're gonna pass the Olympic flank to? And I said, Sure, and he said, Carl Malone. And <laughs> and I just start laughing because I thought he was just joking, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah, I get the joke. And he turns around his clipboard and he shows me that the reason that they moved me <clears throat> back a segment is they dropped Carl into my segment, okay? And my wife just starts laughing because she knows all the bad things I've said about yeah. Carl, right? Yeah. <laughs> so now I'm like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? Yeah. And I had about 20 minutes uh, to p- kind of prepare because then they, you know, they put you on a bus to, and they take you along and drop you off. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, should I just get up there and tell him how I really feel and tell him he shouldn't deserve it? You know, I, I mean, I'm like, well, I don't know what to do Yeah. this whole circumstance. And so literally, I will tell you this. I'm sitting on the shuttle bus and I finally say this quick prayer. And I'm just like, hey, you got to help me with this because I don't know what to do. And immediately some words came to me that I'm like, oh, okay. So when I got up to Carl, I asked him to bend down. And I said the words that had come to me, and they're good words. I will tell you that. And if he ever wants to share them, he can. But I feel like that they're only for him to share. Yeah. And um, he stood up and I said, are you ready? And he said, yeah. And so I lit his torch and away he went now nice. the other the the other part of the story that's funny is is later on, I heard from all a lot of other people that as Carl was running through the street in my segment, all the people there were coming back toward me, and there was <laughs> because, because they was were rare. all there to see me, right. Yeah. So there wasn't applauding or there wasn't booing or anything. There was just kind of this weird hushed thing as people went, well, that's not Dale, you know?
0: Oh, that's and, so and they, funny. So they
1: started to go the other direction. So when I heard the story, uh, I decided I would write Carl a letter and say, hey, you had this kind of odd experience. Let me explain to you why that happened. And I was able to get a really nice photo off the back of the media truck. Of me lighting his torch, so nice. I did. I did two eight by tens of that picture, and uh, I sent him the letter and I asked him to autograph the photo, and return it, which he did. But the other photo I autographed, so I'm nice. probably I'm probably the only person who's ever sent Carmelo an autographed picture. <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: so awesome! So I, I love I, that. That's the whole yeah. Carmelo story. That's a good one. That's a good story. So tell me about uh, how NeuroWorks came about. So you've re- you're recovering, and w- at what moment did you decide you wanted to start something like NeuroWorks?
1: Uh, so what happened was, uh, obviously, I had met a lot of other people who had been injured, and they wanted what I was getting. And I, and I couldn't say, well, come on over to my house, because that's where I did my therapy. And at the same time, uh, Jan Black had always wanted her own clinic. Mm. And so uh, we started talking about the fact that it was really unfair that people didn't get decent outpatient therapy. And so we actually said, is there something we can do to help our community? Is there something we can do to help these people who need more therapy, who want more therapy, who deserve more therapy? And so we literally said, "Okay, if we're going to do it, how do we do it? And we, we said we have to eliminate the financial barriers. We have to make it accessible. So we created a nonprofit. We wrote a business plan. We kind of had it in mind. And then the opportunity was suddenly thrust on us. And uh, literally we put $500 in the bank. We rented the empty room in a strip mall in 2004. And we said, okay, we're going to be a spinal cord recovery center. And uh, honestly, it was the dumbest idea because the whole concept was we're going to give people what they need, not what we can make. So it's a terrible business model because (laughs) we're just giving away care every day, but it's a great people model because people make more progress. Right? Yeah. So, and there was just the two of us and there were about 12 people who showed up and um, that was not, that was 19 and a half years ago. And uh, we just slowly, Expanded and wrote grants and solicited donations and more people came and more people came and we added staff and equipment and oh. and now we're in a a custom designed two level twenty four thousand five hundred square foot facility we do P T O T and speech for adults and children with paralysis from spinal cord injury brain injury stroke cerebral palsy spina bifida and similar neurological conditions we treated re- treated several thousand individuals now from 28 different states and four different countries
0: that's amazing
1: the people that we that we have an opportunity to meet are the most amazing people ever so one of more one of the more memorable ones is a kid named bernard and he was in his mid-20s uh he had dropped out of school to help take care of his dad because his dad was dying of cancer and when his dad passed away he Felt like he kind of needed to get away and he was estranged from his mother so he was kind of on his own and he ended up in arizona and got really hooked on skydiving down at one of the dive places down there mm. and uh was becoming a, an expert skydiver right but unfortunately he had a skydiving accident and became a paraplegic with a mm. spinal cord injury and immediately his girlfriend left him and so he was kind of all on his own, didn't have any support system, eventually found his way to Neuroworks in Salt Lake City for therapy. Great kid, very bright, but totally devastated. And he mm. probably was in my office every week. And he would, and he would just say, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to kill myself. Mm. And we would talk and we would talk and we would cry and we would go through things. And finally I just said, look, you know, just give it one year, give yourself one year. And if, if after one year, you still feel the same, then we'll figure out how to take your life and we'll figure out how to move you forward. If that's really what you want to do. Super hard worker. Uh, but it became readily apparent to all of us that his paralysis was very dense, meaning, meaning he probably wasn't going to get a lot back. And he was going to need a wheelchair for the, the, foreseeable future. But he eventually kind of rallied and said, you know, I I think I want to try and go back to college and finish college, which he did. And then one of his lifelong dreams from when he was a child was that he had always wanted to be a veterinarian, but now he was paralyzed. Well, long story short is he pursued that dream and became the first wheelchair user to be accepted into Colorado State College of Veterinary Medicine, graduated with his DVM. Uh, He's now doing a fellowship in uh, veterinary radiology. And the last video he sent me several months ago, he was in the iFly wind tunnel thinking about returning to skydiving.
0: Wow. Wow. Just the the complete turnaround from where he was to where he is now, mentally, even. That's amazing.
1: And the most amazing thing to me is he did it all on his own. Yeah. I mean, talk about courage.
0: Yeah. That incredible obstacle that was put in his way. I, you hear that you never know how much you can do until you try to surpass what you can do. I can't imagine being pushed to that point uh, of where you and him were at, you know? It's just, it's amazing how trials make you shine in a way. Oh, I mean, I
1: I definitely see the purpose in adversity. Yeah. It makes us, it takes us as two-dimensional people and makes us three-dimensional
0: it, Absolutely. it gives us
1: empathy, it gives us sympathy, it gives us courage, it gives us perspective. And it's kind of like what I explained to people. You know, we, when you get married, you, you say you have this person and you you say, how how could I ever love somebody more than I love this person that I married, right? And then you mm-hmm. have a child and you're like, wait, <laughs> wait, like what just happened? Right?
0: It's incredible.
1: Because you, cause you went from 2D to 3D. Yeah. And, and so I think it's that it's that same concept, you know, when you have hard things um, and even though even though you don't want to go through them, if if you don't, you become very, very shallow people, you know, mm-hmm. and it's. Um, fact, um Let me try. I'm going to try and find a quick quote for you that's Very amazing. If you can hang on for just a quick second.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, so this is from... Have you ever heard of the, the, the famous book, Crime and Punishment?
0: I've heard of it, but I've never read it.
1: So the quote is, Pain and Suffering... Are always inevitable for a large intelligence and a deep heart. The really great men must, I think, have great sadness on earth. Mm. And if you know what's interesting, if you look at the history of, of great leaders, uh, many of them have had significant issues to overcome.
0: They have. How can people support NeuroWorks? Is there a way that anyone else outside can support you guys?
1: Oh yeah, I mean obviously we still are we still are um, reliant on donations. Um, you know we, we do write grants and uh, but any, anytime anybody wants to donate, they can just donate directly and go to our website. Uh, we have Venmo, we have PayPal, whatever. We, you know, our end of year campaign is called the Remarkable Journey Campaign because all these people are on this remarkable journey of recovery, mm. and uh, so that's usually our big, our big donation campaign push.
0: That's wonderful. Well, Dale, thank you so much for sharing your story. Well, you're very welcome. Is there anything, any advice that you want to give to the audience?
1: I think, I think just. You know, gratitude is is really something that we need to remember every day, and to be grateful that for all the things you have. And gratitude really becomes a major motivator and a major uh, help in our lives. And obviously, I'm extremely grateful for what I have. And um, and you know, the 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 amazing thing is, I'm far enough down the road now, and the amazing blessings, the amazing opportunities, the people I've met. The things I've had a chance to do, um, I will I will tell you that the worst thing that ever happened to me is actually the best thing that ever happened to me, um, which is always surprising when I when I say that because I miss my body every day. Um, you know, I'd love to not be paralyzed, but I couldn't go back because it's been so valuable and so rewarding and so enlightening in terms of the things that I've been able to experience.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in, you guys. This is a brand spanking new channel, so please drop a like and subscribe so I can keep making this better. Hope you have a good one. I'll see you on the next show.